Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. What's up, everybody? And welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. Hope you guys are all excited for the week, wherever you are in the world. I'm just so grateful to be on this journey with you guys. If this is your first episode tuning in, you are in for one heck of a treat with my good friend, Ms. Kelly Fitzsimmons. So Kelly's story is one that Actually, after we recorded this episode, I was like, we need to get this out ASAP just because the things that we talked about on this episode are so important, I think, for everyone. Not, it doesn't matter if you're in entrepreneurship, if you're doing something hard, if you're putting yourself out there, and if your work defines your self-worth. But what happens when you experience a huge failure in business? Usually, failure brings a lot of dark times. We're so used to wrapping our identities around what we do and when things don't work out our self-worth goes into the gutter. And uh, Kelly found herself in this exact situation. It's almost comical for me to even say this because it sounds terrifying, where a few things outside of her control, business failures led her to being in over $5 million of personal debt. In fact, her situation was so challenging, she found herself in a place where she felt like she was worth more dead than she was alive and considered suicide. This is the dark side of entrepreneurship, a side that's not talked about in public. Right, but it's the time when business owners need the most support. Usually, you'll only hear about the Kelly mentions this in the episode. You usually only hear about the 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 garages, and I started out really small. If and only if the company ends up actually being successful, but there's that in between between the starting point and the end success. That ninety seven percent in the middle that's filled with tough challenges and pushing through failures and making mistakes. And and it's a really tough place to be. And it's not something that anybody really wants to talk about because again, our identities are wrapped up with the results we bring. So after coming out on the other side of that $5 million personal debt failure, and Kelly talks about that in, in this episode, she wrote her book, Lost in Startup Landia, Wayfinding for the Weary Entrepreneur, which is based on her own experiences of dealing with failure and and moving through her own sort of identities and the and the crisis that came from having to really take time away from work because she became so sick putting all of that pressure and every just carrying it all and I think there's a lot of lessons in Kelly's journey that I personally think are some of the most important to be talked about so can't wait for you guys to enjoy this episode. If you're struggling with failure, if you're hitting walls, and if you just need a boost to help you navigate this all too common phase of entrepreneurship, and I'm telling you, it is common. There is not a single person, successful or not successful, that hasn't been hit with a massive amount of failure. And so I just want you to know, this is a personal note for me, I just want you to know that wherever you are, whatever you're going through, you're not alone. Your failures do not define you. Your failures create the next opportunity. Your failures are exactly what that is. They're just failures. They're not you. They are things in front of you that you can look at and learn from. And so 
Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this, uh, and I hope you guys really see the possibilities that arise when you embrace what failure has to teach you and how you can survive and thrive even when you feel knocked down. Kelly experienced spectacular failure and has survived, and she's stronger and more courageous and better than ever. So Kelly's story is just a reminder that failure business doesn't mean the end of the road. Instead, it can be the catalyst for rebirth and a life to live more in alignment with who you really are. So enjoy this episode. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review. If you, and for sure, join the Stay Grounded community. I'm actually releasing a lot of really, really, really special content for the community inside of the Facebook group that covers a lot of these topics on how you can change your relationship with failure, how you can design a life that allows you to thrive and move through all of the roadblocks that come in. So if you're interested in anything taught on this podcast, go to rajana.com forward slash stay grounded, join the conversation. And really, again, nobody should have to fail alone because we are all failing anyways. So we might as well do it as a group. But without further ado, all of you, here is my good friend, Miss Kelly. Fitzsimmons. Enjoy. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back to another episode of Stay Grounded. Hope everybody tuning in is having a phenomenal start, middle or end of your week. I am so excited uh, to have you here, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So excited to be here. Yeah, I I mentioned this before we started chatting, but I've been fanboying for the last like 30 minutes on you, your perspectives, your story, uh, and and really your 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 book, everything. I mean, everything is has got such a pure heart behind it and it's not talked about enough in today's culture and society. So I'm just so excited to dive in and go down the rabbit hole with you. Yay. So I'll dive in. I already intro to you in all of your awesomeness to um everybody, but One question I had, and I'd love to start here, is you talked a lot about, you know, you have the beginning points of entrepreneurship where everybody's really excited and like kind of pumped to get started. And then you've got like the next step is really the glorified win at the Mm -hmm. end, but the middle's not really talked about much. Why do you think, even though the middle, which is like the hustle, the the hard work, the failures, the disappointments, the embarrassments, all of those are some of the most common things amongst entrepreneurship? Like, why do you think it's not talked about enough? Well, I think that there's a couple answers to that question. The first one is act one is really only talked about if act three is really great. So we don't hear really the start until we've already finished the journey. So if act three is so awesome and, you know, it's this triumphant entrepreneurial story, we'll hear about act one, the garage. Act two in classic story structure is where the struggle and conflict is. And the truth is, most entrepreneurs don't want to talk about it because that's when we're not at our best. When we're in struggle so often, that's when our shadow and our demons show up and dance. There's experiences in there that might even be traumatic, that revisiting it is heartbreaking. And as I was writing the book and going through it, I ended up going through trauma therapy again because it brought back up so much stuff. and. I was dedicated to telling the story of the struggle because I wanted to make sure nobody who is out there feels alone. And if they were reading my bio and thought, oh, well, she got it all figured out, just hit it out of the park, it's a lie. 
I didn't want to participate anymore in that lie. I wanted to make sure that aspiring entrepreneurs knew that people like me, you know, are standing on a mountain of failure, (laughs) of things that didn't work, of places where it did break. And I think a lot of the reason we don't talk about it is we're ashamed. Mm, And that sounds so heavy. I mean, it, is heavy. <laughs> it sounds heavy. Like, I mean, I could see that even stopping people from wanting to try. All right. So let, let's, let's talk about that shame because to yeah. me, everybody's going through it. Everybody's failing. So is it necessarily the failures itself or is it our relationship with the failures? What yeah. do you think is really sort of causing this mountain of like just this weight on the shoulders in that middle phase? So you're hitting on it. Failure itself is not the problem. It's our relationship to failure. It's how we hold it. It's how we define it or how we let it define us. So when I was dealing with some of my hard places and stuck places, I made a very common mistake, which was instead of seeing my behaviors as not working and leading up to failure, I declared myself a failure. And that collapsing of identity is really common in our language and how we talk about failure. And so when I failed big enough, I got to a place where I wondered, well, am I an entrepreneur? You know, Mm. can I call myself an entrepreneur? I mean, look at what I've done. And in that place, I really had a collapsing of identity, which is a dangerous place to get because when your identity collapses, you think you don't matter. So your business fails, you quote unquote have failed. And so should you still exist? And The reason why I bring that up is it's a really hard and very uncommon conversation today around identity and work. And what if our work doesn't work for us? Are we still valuable? Are we still supposed to be here? And for me, I came to what I thought was the logical conclusion when my business failed and I was 29 and I was under $5 million in personally guaranteed debt. I really started to get to a place where I'm like, I'm worth more dead than alive. That is a very dangerous place to get. And it was all because of my language and how I held failure and my misidentification of failure as my identity versus something that I was experiencing. What's the healthy way to reverse that language? Let's say somebody listening is sort of in that space where they're failing, things aren't going well, they're tying their own self-worth to whatever result is really coming inevitably in their life. Like, how do they begin to change the conversation so it doesn't feel, I mean, really, like, that? you can't be the only person who's in the space where they feel almost suicidal after, after failures, you know? So how does one yeah. begin to, to challenge the conversation in their own minds in a healthy way? I think the first thing is to end the myth that you can do it alone in your own head. You can't. When you get to this place the collapsing is really almost like a rewiring. Your brain is wired to think a certain way. You have been so motivated by results and achievement to get even get into the trouble that you're in, right? You've already made the critical error of identifying yourself as your outcomes, as your results. Yeah. And when your results aren't stacking up, it's almost impossible for us in that state to do what we need to do, which is to change the language and stuff. We can't do it inside we need help. This is where we require getting into conversations with other people. And my entire attempt with the book, the speaking tour and the podcast that I've been doing is to start that conversation in a safe way. So they're in their car, they're feeling this, they can hear me talking about it, they can hear you talking about it. 
and realize they're A, not alone. B, getting into conversation with people who can remind them who they really are and that they are of value just for breathing, just for being here, not for what we do. That's part of the culture that we live in that is so driven around results, outcome, and achievement. You know, we leave tens of billions of dollars in unallocated PTO time because we're trying to figure out how to make ourselves more productive Mm. as a nation instead of caring for ourselves. And so this is not just an individual problem, it's a cultural problem. And so we need those around us who love us and care for us just to remind us that we aren't our work. That isn't who we are. It's just an aspect of our life. You know, one of the most powerful practices I picked up a few, maybe like a year ago, was to, it's a big fan of writing down things I'm grateful for in the morning, but one mm-hmm. shift was writing down things I'm grateful for about myself Ooh. when I started my day. Yeah. And it was really uncomfortable at first. And oh, yeah. I imagine that would be for anybody listening, but like, for some reason, over time, it just got easier and I just felt even then, like I started putting more value on how I was showing up as opposed to how I was creating results. It's almost like that shift, right? Because that's really what it, it is. It comes down to like, it doesn't matter if you're super successful, but a dick, if you're doing really well and you got all these results, but you've lost everything else in the process. Like, I think who you are is so much more important than what you become. The way I would put it is that Success in our culture is really ill-defined. It's like a a six-year-old defined success. You know, you get the cars, you get the money, you get, you know, it's just, it's so infantile, really. And yet that's what we hold up again and again through our culture and our our songs, our music, our art, you know, that's that 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 reflection and advertising is really infantile about success. It's not real. I, like you, have had the good fortune of being able to accumulate enough material success where I can now stand outside of the work culture and and be a cultural critic of it, right? And see it more for what it is because I'm not in the machine right now. And what I'm noticing is that we can succeed in the cultural definition of success with money and fail as a human being. And that's a horrible failure. And what I mean by that is what you were saying. It's like, you can have all in the money in the world, but if your kids don't talk to you, was it really worth it? Yeah. You know, is that success? Or if the people in your life are all there because somehow you've tied them to the money, is that love? Is that, is that human connection? It's very shallow and hurtful. And, and it really do, it does come down to language and our lens on how we hold ourselves and why are we doing the work that we're doing? I believe that entrepreneurship is a gauntlet through which it's so difficult at certain points that if you really engage it wholeheartedly, it has the potential to really humble us in the process, take away that ego. You're forced to examine yourself on a really deep level if you let it. Now, that doesn't mean we all get there. A lot of us do entrench into magical thinking that we are the magic. That tends to happen with people who have not failed spectacularly enough. Or if they do fail, there's another way they can go, which is they can entrench into their own righteousness and the universe is out to get them or God is out to get them or everybody else, their ex-wife is out to get them. That's another form of failure. Again, all the money in the bank, they might be getting humanitarian awards, but they're not a good human being. 
not that they can't have the potential. We all have that potential. They're just choosing unconsciously hold on to the armor of self-protection versus letting themselves acknowledge their vulnerability because it's just too scary. It's too hard to do that for them. And for me, it's uh, for all of us, for that matter, right? I mean, it's hard to have those conversations with yourself when those conversations and those unconscious, subconscious beliefs were made when we were kids, right? Yeah. It was all a lack of love or maybe something we needed when we were younger and that etched in stone a belief. And when you think about society, society, everybody's running on those old beliefs that were made. That's why these definitions of success are what they are. That's why they're the flashy cars and the money. And if you think about even, you know, I've been studying a lot of just like, you know, just the male culture in general and as of late, you know, and I'm thinking about like our generations past, you know, the things that men traditionally valued were, were wealth and power at all costs. You know, we would, we would sacrifice fatherhood. We would sacrifice our own feelings. We would sacrifice being there for the people that mattered in order to achieve this. And I just, I think it's finally starting to change slowly, but surely the conversations are changing, but these conversations are all rooted in those subconscious beliefs, you know, the yeah. lack of love we received as, as children. And until I think we start to change those conversations with ourselves, it's really hard to embrace. Oh yeah. Right? I mean, think about it when we were kids and it doesn't matter, you know, where we come from, there was stories we created that were built around scarcity. We didn't get enough of something yeah. that we desperately needed. And for 99% of the world, it's very tangible. For those of us that were born into middle class or upper or to wealth, it's a whole different thing. Oftentimes it is a lack of attention or a lack of care, a trading of time at the office for time with our children. And yeah. I did this. You know, this isn't an, an indictment of my parents. This is an indictment of me. I made those choices very consciously when I took on venture capital and I had parking going. I had a new, I had a brand new baby and one that was 18 months old when I closed our first round of venture capital. I mean, I went into the hospital, had the baby, signed the paperwork in Chicago three days later. Wow. I had done this on the heels of a really good exit. I had exited a company in um, 2006 and was able to pay off my debt. And I needed a break. I needed to rest. I needed to be with my family. And instead, with these small children, very, very small babies, I hopped right back in because I had told myself a story. Now I knew what I was doing. I mm. learned my lessons and I was going to prove to the world that I was successful. Mm. Yeah. And that was a really bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... I mean, I can make the case now that it was also a really good choice in a sense that I, without that experience, I wouldn't be where I am right now, which is very conscious about those traits and being able to speak with some, some you know, personal experience and heartbreak around where those trades lead yeah. and what are sort of the natural conclusion of them, which is... I'm still working. Now my kids are 13 and 11 and I have a lot of damage to repair. Yeah. I have a lot of time to make up for, which actually I, I can't make up for. I just want to mention, and I've always believed this, you know, your mess is your message. Although the last several years, there were bad choices, quote unquote, but mm -hmm. ultimately it's now empowering you to 
help people and share in a way that they can authentically relate to. And so mm-hmm. I think I've I've come to this term that everything is happening for us in life. Yeah. You know, everything happens for us, not against us or yeah. to us. Yeah. If you hold that as a belief and we have to create these beliefs, you know, we kind of think that the ones we got in childhood are real and that these ones that we create as adults aren't real, mm. but they're all made believe. They're all made <laughs> you know, up. We, they're all made up. So might as well author some good ones. Like this is happening for me. How can this help me be the best version of me? And without those bad choices, quote unquote, or those hard times or the heartbreak that can go with it, how is it happening for me? Well, for me, I required a lot of heartbreak to be able to access compassion. Mm. I really needed that amount of it because I had so much self-protection. I always said that my heart had plexiglass over it. People could feel like they could touch my heart, but I knew that they weren't, that I had that, that distance. And it was all in design to keep me safe because I never felt safe when I was little. You know, I was never fully me. I wasn't able to be me because the self-protection kept anybody from actually seeing the full me. And that always leads to one place, which is loneliness. I have a question. How did you begin to maybe soften that plexiglass? You know, just this feeling that you're either protecting yourself from love or love's going to hurt. Like, how did you begin to sort of, you know, massage those walls and make them make them more accessible for yourself or the people around you? There was no massaging it. <laughs> you know, it it required full shattering. It really okay. did. The first shattering happened when I was 29 with the dot-com crash and my loans being called. That was the shattering of persona. Up until that point, I had a story that if I just worked hard enough and put my nose to the grindstone, I could make anything happen. Well, that was not a true story. And reality wanted to make sure I saw that. The second shattering happened in 2016. My mother had passed away six months prior. Then my sister died unexpectedly two months prior. And I was getting very ill, physically ill. And all of a sudden, two months after my sister's death, I lost my ability to read. Mm. I had to resign from all my boards, my corporate boards, my nonprofit work. I had to take a sabbatical from work. And I didn't know if I was ever coming back. I didn't know if I was going to start reading again. And I thought it was some sort of weird, twisted piece of grief that I needed to handle and work through. Turned out I was dealing with a brain injury brought on by toxic mold in our house. So all of that would come go through. But navigating that pace, I had to deal with the heartbreak that I had used work and busyness as an excuse to never touch, right? Yeah. So I'm exceptional at being so busy and having such noble excuses that I don't really have to be with my pain. And so the universe, how this happened for me, took away work right when I would have used it to get out of the grief so that all I could do was grieve and not just grieve them, but grieve my identity. Cause I was pretty sure at that point I could never work again. That was really the shattering where I started to learn how to talk to my husband. I got rigorous about my honesty with him and we've been together for 20 years. And up until that point, I'd always kept something behind. So I would have said like, we were 98% honest with each other, but that 2%, like most couples, you don't talk about, right? Yeah. Like your best friend's really hot kind of stuff. Like you know, the stuff <laughs> that you just kind of keep to yourself. 
you know, I got a crush on so-and-so. To me, those secrets felt like they were going to burn down the house. And if I ever confessed them, that that would be the end of us. And instead, it was really the beginning because I finally felt fully seen. And I coughed up some hairballs of shame that went back to college that I never told anybody. Mostly decisions that had hurt me, bad choices I had made that I was just, if I felt like if anybody knew that about me, they could never forgive me. Yeah. And so what happened was it broke my heart open to a place where over the course of the last three years, until, you know, you know, there are, there are occasions when this will happen now, but Jeff and I just stopped criticizing each other. There was just no room for criticism anymore. I had this idea, and I don't know if it's right. It's just an idea. The reason why we treat others poorly, particularly our closest, our nearest and dearest, is that we're withholding information. We're holding back something. Or maybe we've lied to them directly. But we have to diminish them in some way to justify our lie. Mm. And if you, It's always a tell with people who I've worked with. I can tell when there's like embezzlement and stuff. People start acting really weird and acting out and acting angry at the company or angry at the leadership. And it's always a tell that they're up to something. Wow. And I, I just took it back and I started looking at it myself going, oh, that's how I treat those I love. Like if I'm withholding or if I've lied to them on some level and lies of omission totally count, can't treat them as a peer. You've got to just diminish them a little. Mm. It makes perfect sense. It sounds like radical honesty became the tool that you use to sort of navigate grief with with as much ease and grace as you could. So I was so broken. I mean, it was like, like my brain was also very broken. Reading wasn't the only thing I couldn't do. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't really listen to music. I was getting severe migraines and I lost things like the ability to do procedural things. I would get lost in our kitchen. I couldn't figure out why I was in the kitchen. So I'd lose like working memory. And so Part of it, I think, was just like, there wasn't any place to hold it anymore. Like, it just had to come out because the filters weren't working. Wow. <laughs> Talk about, like, back against the wall. Um, so, like, <laughs> when you started having these conversations, talk to me about, like, honesty in general, like, practicing honesty. Do you have any uh, lessons from that? Like, was there an easier way to do it than not? Was there, like, did you have any sort of, like, ahas in the process of you sort of using honesty as a tool to heal yourself? Well, it's great questions. First off, I think the acknowledgement that none of us are honest, you know, we can practice honesty. That just means that we're more aware of the lies we're telling and the willingness to catch ourselves because the social contracts that we live in within this culture require lies of omission multiple times a day, particularly in the female culture and women culture. Yeah, this is how we do social greasing, right? So you got to be really careful. And I didn't practice radical honesty because radical honesty, at least how I hold that definition, is that it's like, I'm going to unburden myself of this. And now you've got to hold it. Mm, yeah. I'm very conscientious of you have to have the invitation. You know, there needs to be an invitation to share. So if anybody asks me a question, I usually will come back with, okay, like, what exactly are you looking for? You know, how much can you hold? Like, this is my opinion. This is what I see. I'm willing to give it to you all, but I don't know if that's what you're really asking for. So I, I'm, I'm in an invitational conversation with people because first off, what I see isn't the truth. I mean, it's just through my filtered lens and my set of experiences right. and what I attach it to. 
my assessment, it's not reality. Nobody sees reality clearly. We're all have very warped lenses. So right. I, I want to acknowledge that. So honesty as a, as a practice is one that requires consent. You have to be in a consensual relationship with somebody to practice it like I do. And you constantly have to ask for the invitation. I was out with a girlfriend the other day and she was giving me all this stuff. And I said, do you want me to tell you what I'm seeing right now? Or do you want poor babies? She's like, I need poor babies. I'm like, got it. (laughs) So it's poor baby. So it's not a lie of omission at that point. It was just a lack of invitation. I really appreciate that distinction, the lie of omission and the, like just the invitation in general. Well, I have a a kind of a, a question that came up. So you mentioned radical honesty as a way to unburden yourself, which mm-hmm. I think still has use, right? Like for yourself, right? It's it's like a way to release something. So like, how do you balance that need to unburden with the need to be conscientious of where other people are at? Think of it when you unburden something, there's a weight to it, right? There's a heft to it. Yeah. You wouldn't give that heft to a small child and say, carry mm. this weight right? Yeah. You wouldn't give that heft to an elderly person who can barely carry their purse. When you're unburdening yourself, the act of compassion is to see, am I giving it to someone? Because it's always an intimate act. I mean, we can do it on stage and that's a very different form of it. But, and, and, I, and I'm practicing this form in terms of what I'm doing with my speaking right now. I'm you know, sharing a lot of stuff that up until three years ago, I would have thrown up at the idea of sharing on a stage. But I'm doing it more and more conscientiously. In the beginning, it was it was really kind of awful to watch. Um, but I'm now very conscientious of my audience. Like, am I handing over something that's too heavy for them to hold, or that they don't want to hold? I didn't create the. I didn't ask permission. Mm. Right. It wasn't a consensual relationship. So when we unburden ourselves, particularly when we got some of these secrets, like I did with Jeff, where I felt like it was going to burn our house down if I admitted these truths, I needed his consent. You okay. might not want to carry that weight because sometimes when we unburden ourselves, what we're really saying is I want you to see the real me. We also have to be prepared that they might not want to see the real us. Ooh, that felt, I felt that one. That's a scary place to be. So would you say that like the most important thing to practice in this life of, you know, really embracing honesty is the courage to accept different things? Oh, no. What comes up for me, it's that courage is a huge piece of this because our heart does want to say, look, this is the reality. And whenever, whenever we do a lie, whether it's a lie of omission or a straight up, you know, false assertion, we know, yeah. we know that we're lying. And every time we do that, it creates a moral injury. Mm. And the more we do it, the more we stop trusting ourselves. And when we stop trusting ourselves, we stop loving ourselves. This is the how this works. And so we start to feel worse and worse. And this is a lot of times where the armor comes in, where you see people that are overly like self-protective. It's because they fundamentally don't trust themselves. They've watched themselves over long periods of time be dishonest. If they were true, if they finally stepped into honesty with themselves, they feel like they'll collapse because it's a house of cards, right? Their whole identity is based on all this lies of omission or, or, or false assertions or whatever it is. So there's a huge piece of courage that's involved, huge to step in and say, that's not right. For me, the practice that I do 
isn't about anymore. I did do the whole, let me take off my clothes on, on stage kind of thing emotionally, which worked for a period of time and was important for a period of time. But I then realized I was burdening people with information that they didn't necessarily want about me. And it wasn't consensual. So this is my evolution. Yeah. <laughs> where I am <laughs> right now, where I am with it right now is Wise that, Kelly. Well, yeah. Well, you know, it's, you go through this process, you have to do it wrong. Yeah. I mean, you have to start out and just be awkward and stupid about it and embarrass the, you know, embarrass the hell out of yourself and be like, oh, and have friends come up and be like, I really didn't want to know that about you. Like, shit. Okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or first, yeah, you think you're telling your truth, but we're so interrelated that I wasn't just telling my truth. I was telling the truth about Jeff, my children, like all of these other people that I didn't have their consent to tell those stories. Yeah. There's, I'm not, no one of us are just pure individuals. Like we're all interconnected. So that's another piece of the consent side on honesty. So today the practice I have is not that I, I don't lie. I absolutely will find things that will fall out of my mouth. I'll be like, oh, oh no. And it usually takes at least, sometimes I can catch myself in a minute, but sometimes I won't catch myself until like later that day. And I'll go, wait, was that true? did it recently. And I ended up sending out an email to a bunch of people in which I said, I'd never cut somebody off in traffic. Now I'm at a place in my life where I drive like a very pokey driver today, but I was a teenager. I was also in my twenties an alcoholic. Like I have totally cut off people. Never is not a true, you know, it's not a true assertion. And so I needed to go back and clean that up because I felt off. Now I could have left it. There was nobody had any proof one way or the other. I declared myself to be this kind of driver that I'm always polite, never cut anybody off, but I knew that wasn't true. And so I cleaned it up. So I think that's the best we can hope for is that we own it and we clean it up. People might not be like, Ooh, she's a liar. But the fact is we're all liars. (laughs) So it's a question is whether or not you're willing to own it. Yeah. So I want to talk about, cause I, I think I just made an aha moment in my mind. So you said the only way to truly love yourself is to trust yourself, which is truth, right? So grounding yourself in truth. What do you think is the truth about failure? Oh, failure is a declaration. You know, somebody could have all the, I mean, think about, and it's a declaration we have to make for ourselves. This does not work. This failed. Not, and I want to be careful, don't ever say I failed because that's the, the collapsing of identity yeah. and things. So be careful with our declarations because they're really strong. We're still working off all the declarations we made as kids. Like, I can't right. trust anybody. Nobody's got my back. It's only a matter of time before they betray me. Like we made this stuff up as kids. Those are strong declarations that live in our body to this day. And they're juvenile and they get us in a ton of trouble. But we're making them as adults too. And so when we fail, we have this opportunity. And the truth is, Nobody can declare our failure but ourselves. We, we get to declare when we fail. And that's, there's power in that. And so first off, I would say you get to call it. That's a truth about failure. Think about addiction and why interventions almost never work. The person isn't ready to declare that they're an addict or an alcoholic yeah. yet. Nobody, no, no amount of social proof can get through that thick skull. They have to declare it. And if they declare it, then they can get well. So the truth about failure, it is what you declare it to be. Mm. If you declare it to be your identity, you will collapse. You will go, you'll deal with the depression and all the things that go along with that, right? You can declare it a teacher. 
I love that approach. It's not a friendly teacher. It's a really bad, angry nun, you know, with a ruler. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, this is not, you know, this is not Mary Poppins kind of teacher, but it is a teacher. If we declare it as such and we're willing to stay in the discomfort, it has so much to teach us about ourselves, right? But we have to declare that we're willing to be a student of, of it. And that's the power of the choice that we have. It's all up to us to author the story. And that's where most of us get confused. And we just do automatic story writing, like I'm a failure, or this will never work out, or the universe is out to get me. These are very common places we go to. My whole thing is, it's not that I don't go to those places. I absolutely still do. I will still collapse my language. And I recently, you know, put something out that I was really embarrassed by and I just beat the hell out of myself about it. The only thing I can say now is that I don't do it as long. I catch, I tend to catch myself quicker because I know beating myself up actually is more likely I'm going to do it again versus, Got it. you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of science around that. You actually have to be kind to yourself. That's why diets don't work. You eat the piece of cake. You're like, God damn it. I ate the piece. And then you eat the whole fucking cake, right? Instead of, <laughs> Oops, I made a mistake. Sure, that tasted really good. Yay. Okay, no more cake for me. Back on paleo or whatever our shtick is. Um, when we are kind to ourselves and compassionate to ourselves for a mistake, we're less likely to make that mistake. So the truth about failure is that it is what we make it. And we have so many choices. But if we're going to make choices, why not make ones that ultimately support our mental health and well-being, which is to choose to see it as a teacher? not as a condition or a identity. Oh, I felt that condition word because it is like, oh, I failed once. I've caught the, the sickness of failure. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. just going to keep happening because it's like I'm, I'm stuck with it. It's stuck on me. Like, get it off me. Get it off me. Get it off me. Right. Run, run, run as fast as you can away from the failure. You don't want to be with those people or identified with this and, it's, it's, it's a label. If you hold it as a label, it's condemning. Mm, I mean, think yeah. about when you think about somebody who you think, oh, that guy is a failure. Like it's, you have written that human being off. There is no possible prospect of anything good coming from that human being. It's a condemnation. We rarely do that to people, but we often do it to ourselves. And that's the, that's the mistake. You know, I've heard this, I think I mentioned this quote on the show a few times because I just love it so much, but I had a friend who, he he wrote this video, he like created this video and he talked about treating yourself like someone you loved. Yeah. Right? And you, yeah. most of the time, would never treat someone else the way you treat yourself. You would never hold someone else to standards. If I think about like my brother or my mom or my my, anybody in my life, like I would never in a million years, if they failed or if they did something and they, they tried and didn't reach something, like I would never sit there and be like, ha, 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 ha. like yeah. I would never do that, right? Like that's evil. That's just it's evil. So evil. But for yeah. some reason, like it's just that standard we hold ourselves to that feels, how do we hold truer standards or how do we hold mm-hmm. standards that are rooted in truth so that so that when we inevitably do fail or experience failure, it's not debilitating. So this is, this is 
what I do. This is my practice. And I don't know if this works for anybody but me. But what I do is I really work on courage, my courage, proving to myself that I'm still a a little bit of a badass. And what I did, and one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because I, I dared myself to write a book when I couldn't read. Because if somebody else did that, I would declare it like, well, they're a badass. And so if I go and do it, then by the transitive law of badassery, I'm a badass. <laughs> and <laughs> I love so that. How I got myself out of all of this, and like, and I was in the pit of despair. Let me be very clear. I was very much in a pity party. Poor babies couldn't get them enough when I was dealing with, with, at the heart of the brain injury stuff. But the only way I got out of it was inch by inch of daring myself to do something. So I dared myself to write a book when I couldn't read. I dared myself to get on stage, grab a microphone in front of hundreds of people and embody Joan Jett uh, for a fundraiser. And scared. it was the first time I'd sung into a mic. I dared myself to, to write and produce music. And in November, I'll be releasing an EP. Yeah, baby. So I keep doing these things and it's, and every time I do it, like it requires so much help. There's so many people I have to ask for help. So my acts of badassery also have this added benefit of getting out of my head and asking people for help, which I desperately need to do. And I'm not natively good at, particularly on the music because I'm not classically trained. So it, it was required so many people to come around me to help pull the music out and it's been just an absolute delight, but it's how I'm learning to trust myself again and believe in myself again, because I'm doing things that impress me, not for nobody else, but me. You're so awesome. Like I, <laughs> I thought I was a fanboy before this conversation, but I'm like super, super fanboy now. Uh, you're, I just love the, the bad the making, you're like making yourself your own badass that you look up to. Um, I, I mean, it's, I don't know if it works for anybody else, but it's gotten me out of a lot over the last several years. And the thing is, you then define what you think is badass, mm-hmm. which is the power of that. Like, it's not someone else who created this this def- definition of super, you know, you. It's you created right. this definition, and then you know, and and you can start small. It can be a small act of kindness that makes you feel something about yourself. Like you were a good person today. It could be just sticking to, sticking to a promise you made to yourself, something small. Like, you know, it's just, I I just. Friday afternoon off, hold Friday afternoon with no meetings. That's a, that could be an act of badassery. You know, I talked about the big stuff, but I'll tell you in the beginning, I was so scared to talk to people during this period because I was slurring my, yeah. my words slurring and my memory was poor. So I was scared I'd forget names or conversations. So I just avoided people. So some of my very first acts were, I remember I, I chose to go to a different coffee shop and I'd have to order because they didn't know my order. And I was so scared because what if I couldn't think of my order? What if I couldn't articulate myself and they were just going to, oh, oh, we got it, Kelly. We're going to set your, you know, set my order. That, so going into a new coffee shop was like one of my first, which sounds so lame, but it was uh, honestly what the word that comes up for me. And I know it's a big word, but it was terror. Terror is being seen as, as deficient or how I was holding myself at that moment was handicapped. Like I, mm. I felt like people were going to see me and think I had dementia or something. And that was, so that, I mean, so the acts have to be big, as you put it, 
to you and nobody can define that but you. And I think that's the magic of it. Gosh, oh man, I, I'm like imagining that right now. That would, that does sound terrifying. I thought you were a badass when you wrote your book, Blind, but I think that <laughs> one might trump this. So for everybody <laughs> listening, right? Trying to order a complicated coffee drink when you can't speak uh, or do procedural. Uh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds ridiculous. Like, you yeah, know, and I'm thinking about it. I just went for it. a soy latte. Like, I didn't do my well, thing. Well, here's the, here's the thing. thing, and I just want to reiterate, you know, everybody listening, like I just found that to be more badass than somebody writing a book blind. That comes back down to like your own personal definition of what is badass. Yeah. And I just wanted to, oh my gosh, Kelly, you're so awesome. Yeah. All right. So I want you to spend a couple minutes just talking about Startup Landia. Talk about the book, the work you're doing, just everything. Cause like, just, I am so grateful to call you a friend and I just love the you embody everything that I think entrepreneurship should embody. And I'm just very grateful that you have the courage to speak out on a lot of these things because it's, it's, it's a tough fucking world out there. We're not nice to ourselves. And the first place to start is to open up these conversations. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you're up to? Yeah. So uh, in May, I published my book, Lost in Startup Landia, Wayfinding for the Weary Entrepreneur. And it was the gift to myself that I wish I had had at 29. And, you know, my desire with it was to spark this national conversation around mental wellness and entrepreneurs taking care of themselves. There's this entire literary genre of books that's dedicated to success. It's like, follow my roadmap. And, you know, you do these five things and you too can be like me. And it's just, it's a bunch of horseshit. It's like, it's so unhelpful because, you know, it's based on the particular entrepreneur's set of strengths, which is very unique to them their timing, their market. And, you know, some habits are helpful, but the real things that I've discovered is you can't follow anyone's path to success, but there are some surefire ways to fail. Almost all entrepreneurs fall into these, these you know, predictable traps again and again, because as you put it, the train's so hard. So, you know, one of them is going it alone, you know, trying to, you know, be that that solo perfected genius that can somehow have the vision and plant the flag and totally disregard the gifts of the people around us and our teams. You know, that is such a common one and in a very easily avoidable one, but we have to get our ego out of the way. And if we're a young founder, that's really a lot to ask. Another one has to do with how do we handle the highs and lows? And almost all of the people I know, we all use something to pad it. You know, so addiction becomes, you know, part of the mix. And it doesn't mean just addiction to substances. I think one of the most nefarious in the world of startups is addiction to work. Mm. And that is an actual addiction. It is in the DSM, it's work addiction. And when I was working, when I, when I quit drinking, I cross addicted into work and suddenly I'm working hundred hour work weeks. Now it made me financially successful, but as we talked about early on, I was really failing as a human being. I was definitely failing as a mother, but I was willing to sacrifice that because it made me look so good. At least that was the story I was telling myself. So these predictable traps are all out there. And so what I wanted to do is just call attention to it and say, look, yeah. we all do this. We all, we will all come here. We will get into places where we think we're the magic and entrench into that thinking. We'll get into places where we're over padding the painful parts and we get into addictive routines. and just becoming aware and conscious of those is, is a lot. It's power. 
But I think one of the most profound things was like the health crisis, realizing that I could actually work myself to death by neglecting my health. I failed to notice that I was dealing until I was way far along with a brain injury. And it was a lot of lack of going to the doctor, a lot of self-care. I mean, just common stuff that almost every founder I know, who goes to the doctor and gets an annual physical? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Who, you know, who eats well consistently and exercises, you know, and, and takes care of their body. Most of the time, we don't do it when we're in the thick of it. We do it when we come out of it, maybe. But when we're in the thick of it, it's really hard to make time to go to the gym. It's really hard to make time to eat well or not to not drink or go, you know, do intermittent fasting. So few of us, when we're in the storm, do the things that will actually help us get through the storm. We tend to double down the behaviors that are more likely to keep us there longer. Self-destructive. That's us, human yeah. beings. We're generative, and the other side of generative is burn it to the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, like I said, everybody listening, can't recommend the book enough, Startup Landia. We will make these links available in the show notes. And anyways, you can reach Kelly and say thank you for all of this awesomeness she just shared with us. Kelly, I have one last question for you. Okay. In the midst of everything you've been through, everything you're doing, and everywhere you're going, how do you stay grounded? Great question. I love your question. Catching myself when I'm disconnecting. I mean, so that's the best I can say. It's, you know, my most precious relationship is with my husband. And it's where I'm learning how to be intimate for the first time in my entire life. It requires a lot of bravery for me to do that. And so when we're disconnected, I know I'm ungrounded because he's such a good mirror for me. And these intimate relationships we have, you know, they, they reflect back where we're at. And without that kind of triangulation, it's so easy to get lost in our own stories or drink our own Kool-Aid or think we're the magic. But if we watch those closest to us, we can always kind of figure out where we are on spectrum. Like, are, are we grounded? Are we getting into the magic? Are we getting to self-destruction? You know, where are we? And those relationships, if we let them, can, can really give us a ton of important information. And ultimately, for me, if I can't be wholehearted with Jeff, I can't be wholehearted with anybody. So yeah. it starts here at home <laughs> with my children. You're such a badass. God damn it. <laughs> like, excuse me. Like, just you're, you're awesome. I'm just grateful that we got to do this. Kelly, sit yeah. down and have this conversation. And again, I want to thank you for being so honest, open, vulnerable. Like I said, you've inspired me to embrace those practices. And I'm sure you've inspired a few others as well. So thank you. I just want, just want to say that. I really appreciate it. It's so fun. Everybody, well, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your new friend, Kelly. And from Yay. us, stay grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. 
Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.